And then um, just an introduction to lab, which is really very straightforward. It's like, what is this? What's that? Lab medicine. And then on the next lecture tomorrow is just basics, some basic stuff on lab medicine. Um, okay, so I know that you guys, that I offered to do a 10-question quiz on just what is this? Your four choices, just images. So to review, you guys were okay, right? So to help out, it's like it's twofold. It's actually, actually to like review the important things on chest, muscular, not, not muscular, skeletal, chest, abdomen, and um, I think basically chest and abdomen, right? Because brain, I can add one or two in there. So what I'll do is that I cannot make it one point per per question because that jumps everybody a whole grade. So it will be like a, probably five points, but at least it's five points that would be put towards, um, I don't know where yet, I have to figure that one out. Maybe add it to everybody, whoever has, whichever is your lowest grade or something to that effect. So you guys are okay with that? Right? It'll be done um, through Blackboard online using lockdown browser okay um so if you guys are not here thursday because it gives me tomorrow you guys want to do it on you want to do it take it on thursday as you guys are home yes. and it doesn't you know okay so i'll have to think about a time on thursday when i'll, I'll you know i'll open it have to figure that one out between today and when I see you guys tomorrow. Okay, so um, so like I said, um, it's not going to have any clinical. It's not going to have any clinical stuff. It's like I'm going to throw up a, an image of a pneumothorax and say, is it simple pneumothorax? Is this a thingy? Is this a thing? Right? So so it's just more. It's it's visual actually. Um, if I can do if I can do twelve, so you get six points. I'll try and find twelve. Everybody's like, yeah, please, because that's too small. It's just I can't do it one point each, because that's just, um, I, um, yeah. Okay. So that's so far, that's on the agenda for Thursday. And I think it's good, too, because you guys will sort of go back and remember the most important of images that you've seen. So when you see the again in your clinical medicine, you'll probably see some of those. All right, musculoskeletal. So we'll just finish up here. Remember, we talked. We were talking about the C spine, right? We talked about C one Jefferson, right? C one fracture is a fracture of C. The ring structure of C one, and the most important thing is the lateral, right? What are they called? The lateral what? Masses. The shifting of the lateral masses of C one over on C2. They should always be aligned. The lateral masses of C1 and C2 should be in alignment. When you have a Jefferson fracture, that's when you don't have the alignment, like we showed here, which is um, easy to pick up here, right? So this is the lateral mass of C1. This is what we call the lateral mass of C2. They should be in alignment, which is very difficult to see. This is a bad image, but they should be in alignment with each other. So when they're not in alignment, um, you know that there's a fracture and remember we said important things about when we when you do get images on musculoskeletal 
mechanism of injury, right? So I'm not going to ask you what's the mechanism of injury. That's that's for that's when you do your orthopedic. What I'm going to tell you is that this is I can tell you this is the mechanism of injury. This is the image. Which of the following is more you know? Or I can give you a description of the of the fraction. You guys can have to will have to determine. Is this a Jefferson? Is it a which we're going to move on to now? Is it a Hanman's fracture? So the Jefferson's fracture is the fracture of C1. The Hanman's fracture is the fracture of C2. Okay? And the important thing to know about the Hanman's fracture, and I don't know if I mentioned it in the other slide, lateral masses beyond the margin. So associate soft tissue, give me one second, splitting the bony ring. Okay. So with Hanlon's fracture, it's a, what we call an unstable fracture. When we say a fracture is unstable, it means that the, it, it requires immediate care because it can affect the, um, the movement of the, the spinal cord and you can end up with uh, neurological issues. Um, what is the mechanism of injury? Hyperextension. And distraction, meaning that the examples if somebody hits their head on a dashboard, right, in a in a motor vehicle accident. Um, as you when you look at the image, when you look at the diagrammatic image, right, it's not the body of C2, right? It's actually what we call the what? Pars interarticularis. Inter means be between. Articular means the movement, right? So the pars articularis is where that fracture occurs. So there are two things that you actually have happening. The C2 pars articularis gets fractured, and then you have an anterior dislocation of C2, of the vertebral body of C2. So um, we had seen, okay, let me see if we go back to a fracture of move one forward. No, I'll be, no, okay, I was trying to connect it to something else, but it doesn't work. Okay, so that's basically the fracture. So you can understand why it's an unstable fracture. Because if you have the body, right, because you remember with the vertebra, right, you have the body of the vertebra, you have the little stem, the right, the interarticularis, and then you have the spine. So in running in between that is your spinal cord. So if you're shifting, if you have a dislocation forward, you can get an impingement of the spinal cord. That's why it's unstable. That's why they consider it an unstable fracture. Um, okay, so C2 slides anterior to C3. So Jefferson is one on two, right? That's how you could look at it. Hanman's is two on three. So those are the two major C-spine um, fractures, and there are many. There are many of them, it's just that we didn't have the time to do that in such detail. But the key is, um, and if, I'm sorry, if you look at it from an imaging point of view, very, sometimes you, it's hard, it's, it's hard to um, distinguish, you know, the fracture of the pars art, uh, interarticularis on a, on a um, x-ray, but what do we know also happens? The forward disloca dislocation, right? The movement of the, the vertebral body moving forward. So what you do is do what we what I normally say it's like a, it's, it's the equivalent of a step off. So with a step off, 
you want to do what? So you want to go ahead and start at the bottom and move your way up and see if there's the alignment or if you have that shift. The other factor here is what is the orange showing you? Soft tissue swelling, right? Remember that's, that's the area, remember we talked about the different lines? That's line one, right? So with line, this is, this is line one. And if you move up, right, this is a soft tissue. It should not be, right? Remember, we start off narrow and then we get a little bit wider. If you look, if you, if you parallel that with a normal um, lateral spine, you'll appreciate the soft tissue swelling more, okay? So um, the, other, the other way that you can, um, you can look at it and say, okay, the, the pars interarticularis is fractured. And let's see, it, do you see, do you notice that this is a circle? You see the, the circular area and then you have the dark in that circle there. When, when you have the uh, pause, the pause interarticularis fractured, that ring, it's like a ring appearance. That, this is the ringed appearance, it's, there's no ringed appearance. That's how you know it's broken. But it's not very easy. It's not something that you can see all the time or appreciate all the time. That's why I would say is try and, and, and look for that forward dislocation, anterior dislocation. But if you can also appreciate by looking at a number of them, right, the, the ring structure, because the ring structure here is broken. Not, not very easy to see all the time, like I said, okay? Any questions? Yes? Could you trace the ring structure? Okay. So here is your ringed structure, and here is the ringed structure. You see, it's very difficult to see especially, but when you go here, the ring structure is broken. Not easy to appreciate. That's what I'm telling you. Some images depend. It depends on the patient, but that's one of the ways you know that they um, that you can try and identify it. Yes. Well, it's one of the most unstable, yeah, compared to the other because of that slippage of the body that can impinge the spinal canal. Yes? Oh, turn off one of the lights? Sure. Which, where is, oh, it's in the back there. Oh. Oh, no, because I was looking up to see. It is kind of bright. Let's see. This one, maybe. Is it the front? I don't know. That's why Ray's doing that, because it's like, yeah, merry-go-round. Can you guys see that better? Yes. Yeah. Okay, if you hear snoring, we're going to have to turn them back up. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so then you can kind of appreciate the ring structure a little bit more. Definitely you can appreciate it, right? On C4. Okay, uh, hello. No, no. It's, yeah, yeah. Can, can, yeah, I agree. You can even like that. It's like a spotlight. I feel like a, I can't even see. What's wrong with you? Okay, so this is the ring structure. Here is a little more difficult to appreciate it, but you can appreciate the broken, the fracture. But the key is, like I said, look for the anterior, the anterior slippage. So Hammond's is C2, 
Jefferson, C1 on C2. Okay, compression fractures. So the thing with compression fractures is this, that it, it's not, when you have a compression fracture, the posterior, the posterior is not um, compressed onto the next anterior. It's the anterior of the vertebral body that's compressed onto the posterior. So it's from an anterior to posterior compression. So you cannot have a posterior to an anterior compression because that means how can that occur? That means you're going through the disc, right? The disc space. So when it comes to um, compression fractures, you have the anterior height of the vertebrae, the vertebral body is compressed, whereas the posterior height is maintained, okay? Anything posterior, the posterior elements are not affected. It's all anterior. Um, what do we know about compression fractions is um, it's not going to be an unstable fracture because neurologic impairment is not common. So it's not considered, right, um, a uh, an unstable fracture. And the thing with compression fractures is you can actually, it's very easy to, especially in a CT, right, because this is a CT image, it's very easy to appreciate the fracture itself. First of all, the vertebral bodies have, they have a, a distinct shape. So now it almost looks like a sinkhole. The other thing too is that if it's not as per prominent, you can look for the une uneven um, disc space. Okay? So those are compression fractures. Very simple, easy to, um, to what do you call that word? To recognize. Who usually, has, who usually gets compression fractures a lot? Elderly, right? The elderly, the elderly patients have um, get compression fractures because of what? Osteoporotic a lot of times, right? So a lot of times they will have a fracture and they don't even realize that they have a compression fracture until later on when um, it starts, they start to develop uh, symptoms that become symptomatic. All right, osteoarthritis. So with osteoarthritis, we have a case, right, from Stripper Detective. 55-year-old woman, chronic knee pain, worse with activity. That's the first thing about osteoarthritis um, is the pain gets worse as you use the joint more, okay? So worse with activity, no morning stiffness. So that's the other key. They get up okay, the joint isn't stiff, but as they start moving during the day, that's when it um, develops. And um, physical exam will reveal crepitus. What is crepitus? Like a clicking noise, right? Sort of a, because it's almost like bone on bone. So it will um, reveal crepitus. They will, uh, they will have a restricted range of motion, and they will have, but the thing is there's no joint effusion. You can't have a joint effusion because what's happening, what, what is the pathophysiology of um, osteoarthritis is a wearing down of the cartilage. So if it's wearing down, the actually joint space is usually much narrower, okay, on an osteoarthritic patient. Okay, so um, osteoarthritis or uh, dejective joint disease, what is your modality of choice? It'll be a radiograph of the knee if radiographs are going to be taken, okay? That's usually a clinical diagnosis, but they will, if, if they are going to do imaging, it will be radiographs of the knee. And what is, so what are the three hallmarks? So when we talk about um, 
osteoarthritic joint disease, three hallmarks, the narrowing, right, of the joint space, the sclerosis, we've talked about sclerosis before. When we talk about sclerosis, how do you expect, what do you expect to see with sclerosis? Right, it's a, right, the radiopacity, right? So you always want to look at the surface, if it's the knee, you want to look at the surface of the tibia and you want to look as well. When you see the narrowing joint space, you should look at the bone adjacent, right? And you'll be able to, to that narrowing space and you should be able to see the osteo, um, to the sclerosis. And then what is osteophytosis? We call them, um, um, oh my God. Bone spurs. Bone spurs, like spurs, right? That's what you said, no? Bone spurs, because what you see is as the as the bone is continually being used and you have that rubbing rubbing effect, you develop these little bone spurs. Okay, so those are the three um, those are the hallmarks of osteoarthritis. I think I have images. Okay, yeah. So just from the image, the first thing we say is what? What's the first thing that, that you notice on that image? Narrowing of the joint space, so because you know, yeah, it's easier to see narrowing of joint space because what you can look for the unevenness, right? So the narrowing of the joint space is on your, it's on the patient's right or left, the left side, right? Well, it, okay, on the left side of that image. So then, look at the black. What do you think the black arrow is pointing to? The sclerosis. The sclerosis, right? Mild sclerosis. Now this patient has. The, um, they can have cyst, subchondral cyst, but it's not always, those are the, the white um, arrows. Not every patient who has osteoarthritis will, will uh, present with uh, subchondral cyst. That's why they're not part of the, um, that's not part of the triad, but however, the osteophytes. So the osteophytes are the arrowheads. So you see how they're sort of hanging over these extra pieces of bone, okay? Um, then I showed you the, what is this? A phalange, right? So here you can appreciate joint narrowing. Here you can appreciate sclerosis. Um, here the patient, patient's bone is very what? Radiopaque or radiolucent? Radiolucent, right? So very osteopenic bone, okay? And these are your osteophytes. So, so just look for those, um, for those three, that triad, before starting to look for anything else. Any questions on that? Okay, moving on. Osteoarthritis. Okay, when we talk about osteoarthritis, oh, I'm sorry, rheumatoid. Rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune disease, right? There's early, we have the early stage and the late stage, and depending on where, which stage your patient presents will determine which modality will help you the most. So with regards to um, patient presentation, 55-year-old comes in with morning stiffness. What did we say about osteoarthritis? No morning stiffness. So that's the first distinguishing key factor between osteoarthritis and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. There's no morning stiffness in rheumatoid arthritis. And where does it usually, usually affects what? The hands, okay? Um, and, you, and they usually have swelling of the metacarpophalangeal um, meta joints. 
Okay, so the diagnosis on this patient was early rheumatoid arthritis. What did they use? MRI or ultrasound? They didn't do radiographs. When do we use radiographs on a patient that we suspect has rheumatoid arthritis? Is when you want to do what? Rule out other causes of the joint pain. Are we dealing with, um, and you know, just from the fact that this patient has, they will have morning stiffness, but remember, you're dealing with patients who sometimes when you interview them, they don't remember, they don't give you, right? They may not give you that information that you need to distinguish them. So in this case, you wanna rule out your radiographs if you're not quite um, convinced, especially if it's in the early stages, right? That it is rheumatoid arthritis. You also can use it when, if, if you have a patient who has established rheumatoid arthritis and you want to see the bony destruction, because that's the thing about rheumatoid arthritis, is that you get bony destruction um, of the, uh, the bone. Okay, and then what are they, they have hallmarks, right? So if we're looking at the radiograph, what are the hallmarks there? So soft tissue swelling, which you don't really see, right, in osteoarthritis. I mean, you can have, but not to the extent, osteoporosis, because we said it, it causes what? Uh, damage to the structural bone. You do get joint, joint space narrowing, which would make sense, because if you're breaking down bone, right, the, the space between the joints is going to narrow. So that's something they have in common. And then they have erosions, erosions of the margin of the bone, or still in tune with the structural damage to the bone itself. So what is, what do we, um, what is the other thing we look at is in the hands, depending on the extent. Um, also, we're gonna look at some images of some of the signs that they have, some of the descriptions of the um, structural changes. But the key is that um, in the hands, it's usually bilateral and symmetrical. We said that with osteoarthritis, they, you can have, right, you can have arthritis of the hand. It can be bilateral, even though we said it's more, that what they need was unilateral. But the key is the chances are is that um, it's very proximal, right, and it's also bilaterally symmetrical in the hands. That's a classic presentation. So. Did I do something to make it look delta? No. Okay. All right. So this is your patient who has um, osteo, what? No, rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. So the patient, so the patient that you have here on, on the, the patients whose hands are on the right, your right, has the, has extreme bone deformities. Have, has anybody, does anybody know somebody who has rheumatoid arthritis, it's a very crippling disease. You know, what have you, have you? No, I used to work with a rheumatologist. Oh, so you work with a rheumatologist. Okay, so you've seen the varying degrees of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So, kind of. So, I mean, it can cripple patients to the point where they're in wheelchairs because of deformity. So in the case of, um, you could tell, you could tell the difference if you, if you look at the, the bone deformities, right, as opposed, as opposed to a patient who has osteoarthritis, even though it was the knee, you don't, oh, there's one with the phalanges, but it's so blown up. 
you don't have the extent of the deformities as you do. So you can appreciate the deformity. Okay? Um, yes? Oh, are you asking a question? Oh, okay. So um, when it comes to when it comes to the um, rheumatoid arthritis, they have some of the deformities. For example, the swan neck. Have you guys heard of the swan neck deformity? So that's this, so the swan neck deformity is this this in the in B. It looks like the neck of a the neck of a swan. You know, the swan has the neck like this. So that's why they call it a swan neck deformity. So there's a description of what this swan neck deformity is, and that, that's a description I can give you. What is it? Flexion of the metacarpophalangeal and distal interphalangeal joints and hyperextension of the proximal interphalangeal joints. So this is what I'm saying about the fact that I can give you guys a description. Yes? On the previous slide, what was the this one? <laughs> on the left? No, this is an abnormality. Yeah, if you look at the thumbs of the patient. And then this just shows a more extreme of the same type of deformity. But thumbs are pointing that out. So yeah, this is the this is the earlier stage and this is a later stage. Yeah, showing the same deformity. I don't know if it's the same patient, but showing later deformity. Yes. Yes. It it occurs in the feet, it occurs in the hands, um, it occurs in the knees, right? You can have it occur in the it is. That's why sometimes these patients end up in um, in wheelchairs and actually in rheumatology, you guys will do this when um, Professor Rivas taught rheumatology this to this year, and I'm sure he's going to teach it to you guys because that's his thing. He's, he was a rheumatology PA, um, but rheumatology is one of those specialties that very um, it's open wide for PAs and even for medical doctors. You don't find too many rheumatologists, so just think about that if you. Want to think about it <laughs> in the future? Just, just putting it out there. Yeah, but it's one of those that, that's pretty open to um, to PAs. And then you have what what is called the hitchhiker's thumb deformity. So you have all these different different deformities, and I don't know if I did all of them. I sort of it was so many of them. You have uh, the boutonniere, right? So you have a number of different deformities depending on which joint is um, deformed relative to the other. I just didn't want to bog you guys down with that. But once you once you hear the swan neck deformity, the boutonniere deformities, you start thinking of rheumatoid arthritis. Okay? Um, avascular necrosis of the hip coming back to haunt you. So now we're looking at the pediatric patient. A 14-year-old boy has sickle cell anemia. Dell pain in the right hip for one month. He hasn't had trauma. But the key is that he, with this pain is so bad that he, it, he, he's not able to do what? He can't play sports, right? And for, for a 14-year-old, that's, dis that, that's disappointing for them. So it's affecting his activity of daily living for him because he, he plays a sport. 
So this, this patient will be, um, the, the diagnosis for this is avascular necrosis of the hip. It's related to the age, his history, because he does have it occurs in some pa in patients who have sickle cell anemia, but not only, right? Any patient can get, any uh, adolescent age can get um, avascular necrosis of the hip, but sickle cell anemia is one of those comorbidities. Um, the key is that they will have this um, dull, it's a dull pain, there's no, and there's no history of trauma. Okay, so what is the modality of choice? Well, the thing is that you don't know what you're dealing with. Even though there's no history of trauma, we, already, we always said that um, you have to rule out, right? You gotta rule out the fracture. So in this case, you will have, um, you'll order the radiograph, right? The pelvic radiograph. And then what they'll do is this additional view. It's called the frog leg, um, the frog leg lateral views of that hip. So it's just the way they place, you know, they put their toes together like a froggy's leg, which by the way, hate reptiles. So a frog leg, so every time you, all you have to remember is be saying I hate reptiles and then you'll remember that we're talking about a vascular necrosis of the hip in the adolescent. Okay, okay, so the key is then that if you, if, if they do the radiograph and it's equivocal, right, and there's a high clinical suspicion, then you'll do MRI or a bone scan. Most likely they'll do MRI because it's a 14-year-old adolescent. But bone scans can also, um, can also determine. Because we do um, flow studies for avascular necrosis. We check blood flow, we check soft tissue uptake, and then three hours later we'll do the actual scan to see um, if, there's, if, if there's any difference between them. Okay, so what about... Um, the avascular necrosis in a patient, the early signs, radiographic, pelly. Sclerosis is always there, right? So what you're gonna find is sclerosis of the um, anterior femoral head. So I'm telling you that's what's there, right? And it became flattened. So which side, which side looks flattened and sclerosed? Right, the patient's what? Left. So you can appreciate the Flattening, so you notice how it's flattened and you notice the sclerosis. What is this? That's not a fracture, what's that? It's a growth plate, right? Yeah, you have to be careful. Um, you remember your adolescents are still growing, so that's a growth plate. We just haven't done pediatric um, thing, but anytime you see, it's just too, it's too perfect to be a fracture. No fracture will be so perfect. So then you always look at the age and go back to the image. So that's a flattening, right? That's a sclerosis. And you can use, and how do you know there's flattening too? Because look at the joint space. Because what was, what was before more circular is now flattened. So that joint space is going to be widened. Okay? So that's avascular necrosis of the hip. Slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Classic presentation, an adolescent with a limp. And the thing with this, the, uh, these patients is that you um, radiographs, anterior and lateral radiographs are preferred. Um, what, do we, what do we know about um, the, slipped, the slipped capital femoral epiphysis? It's usually abbreviated SCFE. 
is that um, you're looking at the posterior surface of the radiograph and you don't need to go any further. So with slip capital femoral epiphysis, right? Uh, what is the, the epiphysis means is the epiphyseal plate, okay? And the capital, capital femoral is the cap, right? So it's like a slippage. So when you look, when you look at the patient, the black arrow, right? It's showing you what is it's showing you relative to the other. So the first thing it's showing you with the black arrow is what? Widening. You have this is the you remember when we looked at oh you can look at the other one. This is the epiphyseal plate and the other one shows you the epi epiphyseal plate better because this is um let me go back. Oops, child abuse. Remember look at the epiphyseal plate, right? That's the that's how it should look. But then look at the epiphyseal plate. It's widened. Yes? And then what do you what do you also have? Lucency. And sclerosis. And this is just this is just the, the additional view. That's the frog leg. And it what it shows you is that when you do when you do the frog leg, you're kind of opening up. Because first it was like this, right? So the joint isn't open. And that's how that's how and now you're opening up the joint and just taking the image. And then they will measure. So that's a little too much, but that's the that's a difference there. One is the frog leg, right? Appearance, and it, it gives them a better idea of the slippage and the other one the other one is just a uh, regular AP view. So the key is that in that history is the, the, the child with the limp. Usually it's the the, 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 child, the child is usually uh, obese and uh, and has a limp. Any questions out? Let's just finish this child these and then you go for a break and then we switch gears. Okay, yeah, sorry. All right, so with regards to child abuse, elderly abuse too, right? That's something you guys will see in the emergency room. Um, HIPAA goes out the window when it comes to this, right? With child abuse and adult abuse, it has to be reported. Is it reportable again? Um, so it has to be uh, reported to the police and also to the CDC. So it's one of those reportable events. So this patient, the key with this is that what happens is that the child usually comes in, um, usually uh, the parent is very protective of what the child says. You can always look, you always have to look at the, um, the relationship between, right, the, the parent and the child. In a case like this, this patient um, hasn't yet learned to walk, but comes in, right, and what do they find? Leg swelling and tenderness along with failure to thrive. Failure to thrive means that this child is probably, um, for height and weight, it hasn't reached the, um, their, their, what do you call those things again? The what? Milestones, yeah, thanks. Don't know, I'll give them crazy moment. Okay, so the, uh, the, the, oh, it's right there, the development milestones. So the key with this is that um, you want to suspect child abuse, because how can a child, Usually the way the bone is, where the bone is broken, right, or, the, or the, the way the mechanism of injury that the parent would 
um, would, what's it called, I would describe does not, will not match with what is seen on the radiograph or the extent of what is seen physically on the patient. So basically it is, um, in the, if there's no neurological signs or symptoms depending on where the abuse, which, which body, which part of the body the abuse took place, you'll have, you'll order what they call a skeletal survey. So the skeletal survey is usually, um, is what you would use to screen children less than 24 months of age. If there is, um, if they're older than that, if they're between the age of two and five, you still do this skeletal survey. But if it is that it has not, it does not show any fractures, but the clinical suspicion is high, that's when you want to order something like a nuclear medicine, like you will order a nuclear medicine bone scan because now you're able to do a whole body sweep anteriorly and posteriorly. So that's in the case where you, the survey doesn't show the fracture, but the clinical suspicion is very high, patients between the age of two to five. These are the ACR's guidelines. When you see it divided like that, it's their guidelines. And then when, um, when they do have neurological symptoms, what do you want to do, right? Head CT, okay? So you want to, the first thing you want to start with is a CT of the head prior to, before even doing, um, without doing x-rays. Um, because um, what, what happens a lot of times is that when they do have, when the abuse involves, right, the skull, those are the abuse that the child never really survives. Because they can have a bleed. So that's why you want to go straight into CT, like the same, the same concept for trauma in the adult. Um, what about when you suspect, when it's something that's non-skeletal, right? You want to do CT. In other words, there's a suspicion, you do the radiograph, um, there's no skeletal involvement. You still want to look for internal. You look at, you know, you see uh, ecchymosis, right? In the, maybe in the abdominal pelvic area, you still want to do a CT because you, you want to look for maybe water bleed. Okay, so that's, um, that's the, the importance of the different levels. So, skeletal survey, 20, 24 months and less, um, ages 2 to 5, you start off with a radiograph, right? And, but the thing is, if, you, if the radiograph is not, doesn't show any, um, any fractures, and you know the high clinical suspicion, you do the, you'll order the whole body bone scan, and then we talked about if it is related to skull, you want to go straight to CT. And then if, it, if it's related to the torso or anywhere else where they, you don't have um, the radiographs and show fractures, you still want to do a CT because you want to look for soft tissue, for bleeding and so forth. Okay, so these are the components of what they call the skeletal survey. You have a frontal and lateral view of the skull, lateral views of the C-spine, lateral views of the thoraco, um, lumbar spine and then a single frontal view right of each long bone so it's basically doing each body part separately right rather than um, putting the patient through um, and um, these are just some examples and those are in your textbooks actually okay of the skeletal survey so it's, it's like doing a whole body but piece by piece so that's a skeletal survey and then this is the nuclear medicine bone scan because, you know, the, with the thing with the bone scan, you see the areas that are uh, intense, 
right? Those are the areas of the uh, fractures. That's the uptake. And just from the way in which, like, a bone, a humeral bone is not going to fracture, especially when, what did we talk about? That, that when it comes to the surgical neck, it's usually the elderly patient. So the fracture, where it's fractured, does not coincide with P, where pediatric patients will usually um, be will usually present with a fracture. So that's when they talk about it not coinciding. The fractures just don't uh, add up. Makes sense. Okay, so you guys want to go for your 10-minute break? The, the first, the intro to lab is um, not even 20 slides. When you guys come back. Oh, okay, yeah, come back. Okay, so I have a quick question. Because two big classmates were looking, anybody looking, um, has been looking at the uh, radiology masterclass for the Capital. So they just brought to the attention, they were a little confused because the, 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 the um, tutorial talks about a green stick fracture being, um, they use the word buckling. When, when we talk about buckling, we talk about the um, torus. Okay, so that's, a, that's terminology because for, for the British, for British we, we say something buckles, it bends. So that's, that's the problem there. No, but it's a bending, it's not a buckling. A green stick is a bend. A, a torus is a buckle. When something buckles, it sort of caves down. Okay? So the buckling they use is a verb. It's not the terminology of the fracture. Does that make sense? So just to, thanks for them clarifying it because nobody else did. Ministers. Okay. So I could have sworn. Let me see. Didn't I? Okay. So we're just gonna run through lab medicine. Where is it? the desktop. It's on the desktop. Oh, you're moving my stuff around without letting me know. Such a typical. Male? <laughs> <laughs> Girls, what do you think? They're outnumbered. <laughs> yeah, what do you like? Yeah, you see, so you have to you have to express your power in the classroom. That's why he chose to do what he does, because he feels powerful. <laughs> he feels powerful. Now I'm the one who moves everything around the house. My husband has always as a thing with me. Oh, where did you leave it? Where did you put this? It's like, oh, oh I met this on company desk. It's like, uh, okay, I, I moved it. Why are you moving something? Okay. So we went from the diagnostics side. Okay, so diagnostics, we're done, right? So now another part of, the, of what you're going to be using in medicine. I don't know, something's, I don't know, yeah, so, so another part of diagnostic medicine is lab medicine, right? So we just want to run through this. This is like quick 20 minutes slide. No, 20 point slide, which is probably going to be less than 20 minutes. But it's just sort of an introduction here, just to some of the terminology, just for us, for you guys to get that intro for when you guys do it in the fall. I think it's still going to be often in the fall. It should be. So we have the whole, all of the objectives. A little bit about coding for diagnostic lab tests, and that's going to follow through you, you guys, when it comes to coding for everything we do in nuclear medicine. When we talk about coding, it's very important to document correctly. Have you guys have, had documentation yet? Next semester. So what you're going to learn is 
You need to document correctly because if you don't document correctly, you cannot, they cannot code correctly. If they do not code correctly, they're not going to get reimbursed. If they don't get reimbursed, guess who's not going to get paid? Okay, you'll be one of those that are not going to get paid. Um, okay, so then we're going to describe some of the methods that are used, some of the variables that can affect testing results when it comes to lab medicine. A little bit about co blood collection, just very superficial. Um, the types of lab settings, just so you know that we always talk about, oh, we're sending it out to the lab, but some, some offices that you go into your clinical work in, or some of you that have worked, may have limited, um, a small lab where they do certain things. Sensitivity and specificity. Why is it important to talk about sensitivity and specificity? Because when it comes to ordering tests, you, you are going to be faced with, or you're going to learn, okay, we're going to order this first, and then from that we're going to order this. When this comes back, then we need to order more. Why, why, why do you not just order one? Why is it that you have to order more than one test um, to have you uh, diagnose? Um, Compare and contrast, what, when we talk about reference ranges, therapeutic ranges, what are they talking about? Um, Pre-analytical, analytical, and the post-analytical phase. Just to, we're just going to review that so you can kind of get a idea. Where, where does most of the errors occur in, those, in that phase of testing? And then what is point of care testing? Um, I, and a little bit some of the indications and limitations. I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember if we're going to do Talk, I think I talked a little bit about limitations. Okay, so use of clinical lab tests. How many tests are used? If you think imaging uses, um, we, there's an overuse of testing. Well, sometimes with imaging, there's more overuse than you will have um, in terms of clinical lab tests. About 7 billion tests are ordered each year. Okay, so the thing with lab testing is why do we order labs? Well, it helps us to derive a diagnosis. Okay, it's going to, it, it's not only just for diagnosis, it's for the severity of the diagnosis. So it can help to determine the severity of the diagnosis. It can assess risk factors, okay? So it's more than just, oh, what is the most likely diagnosis I need to know? Assess risk factors. When you think of assessing risk factors, think of coronary artery disease. You do what? Lipid panels, right? Patient has a history of coronary artery disease in the family. Right? They come for a wellness visit, assessing risk. Let's do, you know, uh, your, um, let's do a lipid panel. Um, it selects and monitors interventions and treatments because maybe you have a patient on, on a medication that you need to know the levels in order for them to not become toxic to the patient or for them to, for you to have the appropriate response, right, to the medication. Lab medicine helps with that. Formulate prognosis. How how likely? What is the prognosis of this patient? Is this patient going to have you know be able to live with this with this disease for how many years? Or do they have this limited amount of time? What is the prognosis of the of the disease? And then to evaluate or avoid potential adverse outcomes, which is something like like we say toxicity, right? So those are some of the reasons why we use um, lab medicine. Um, when it comes to coding, I'm just going to run through this. You guys will be responsible because it's just reading off a slide. But the key with coding is that it all started off with the World Health Organization. They came up with what they, they started off with this international classification of diseases. Anybody's ever heard of the ICD? CM? 
Well, the ICD part came from the World Health Organization, and that's how they used to trace, right, the morbidity data. Then the U.S. decided that we want to add the CM, which is the what? Chemical modification. So we want to use this so nationally, right? If if I'm ordering a test in um, if I'm ordering a test in Iowa and you're ordering the same test in um, in Florida, we want to make sure that first of all HIPAA required it eventually, right? HIPAA was very big on that because you don't want you don't want what is it all about the patient's privacy? So it was a bunch of numbers and they have we have procedural codes, bless you, which is not the ICD-10 CM, that's the PCS. So when you hear um, ICD-10-CM, when you hear um, PCS, you're talking about um, every diagnosis has an ICD-10-CM. Every single diagnosis. That is why medical documentation, they drill it in our heads as providers in school because that's how everything starts and that's it's not just for reimbursement it's also for tracing okay so that's the key there who is responsible for um icd for these icd um, 10 codes is the um, national center for health statistics um tracking right tracking diseases the cause of death um so any t anything that a patient has has to be converted to ICD-10. Um, it's also for billing, right? Third-party payers. So that's another important factor there. Um, so that every diagnostic code must have an ICD code. It's not going to be the CM. CMs are only for what? Bless you. The diagnosis. When you see the um, the clinical modification. Diagnosis only. That's why every single patient will have an ICD-10 code, CM code. Not every patient will have a PCS code unless they've had something done. Not every patient will have, what are the ones we use in the outpatient offices? CPT codes. So, and there's another thing too. Depending on where the procedure is done or, or, the, or the visit is done, with the different, um, you'll use the CPT or you'll use the PCS, but the CM is always everywhere. Doesn't matter where, when, how, it's always, you always are going to use the same CM code. Okay, um, data collecting, da da da, and what else? Complying. Why is it, okay, when to comply with coding, look at how many codes. ICD 10 CM has 148,000 codes. Super specific, so as they went from 8 to 9 to 10, right, specificity has increased. So instead of one code saying, um, before let's say it would say a uh, patient with bilateral pneumonia, now, now it would say acute, uh, acute bilateral pneumonia, one code, a, a chronic bilateral, it just became very specific over the years. So that's a little tidbit about coding. Not only is for lab tests, but it's used throughout. Okay, so what are some of the methods used? So when we talk about the methods, the reason why this is important, because I'm having scratching it, things are just me. The most important thing about lab methods is that um, we use mostly serological or immunological reactions between an antibody and antigen. That's the most commonly used um, diagnostic test. 
um, when we talk about dilution techniques, right, what they're doing is when we do serology, tiders, tiders are dilution techniques. You know when you have to go out into clinicals, they say, uh, oh, have you, have you had your um, hepatitis B shots? And you're like, yeah, I had them 10 years ago. Well, we need to know if you're still immune. It uses that, that that's what they do in the lab. They use the dilution technique. Okay, because you're trying to quantify. That's what they used to quantify it. When it comes to the dilution techniques, they can use latex agglutination, right? And I, I just want you to, to understand the terminology, right? So with latex, when you agglutin agglutinate something, what do you do? You sort of drop them out or you cut them together, right? So when it comes to dilution techniques, latex agglutination is one of them. And the way it works is that you have a patient specimen, and that patient specimen is going to have the antigen because you want to test, right? So this patient presents, and you want to, okay, we just talked about rheumatoid arthritis, okay? So with rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to, you're going to order rheumatoid factor. So what they want to see is that, so, so they want to say, okay, that's the antigen we're testing for. So with agglutination, right, what they would do is that you would have the patient specimen, you're going to mix it with a particular antigen, and then you can actually see the agglutination, and then you know, okay, that antigen is present. So things like rheumatoid factor, which is a little bit more complicated, but CPR, CPR, CRP, C-reactive proteins in what? Inflammation. That's, that's via agglutination. And then just talk about the two different types when you have the inhibition. The inhibition means that when you inhibit something, so beta-HCG, what happens is that you don't have the agglutination. The way the reaction is done is that you, instead of getting the agglutination, you actually inhibit the agglutination, and that would be the positive test. So that's like beta-HCGs. It falls under that category. And then hemagglutination is when you want to identify any antibodies, right, that are present on where? The surface of the red blood cell. Very important when you're talking about blood typing for transfusions. Okay, so that's another, that's one of the other methods that falls under your dilution techniques and it is re related to antigen and antibody, which you said are the most common. Um, then you have electrophoresis. So if they want to determine how many the albumin, right, which is a protein, you will have, you will say, if you do your readings, they'll talk about electrophoresis. What is it? You're separating them using an electrical charge. That's another, so that's the method that's mostly used um, for proteins. So the percentage is separated. Um, immunoassays, we've seen the immunoassays, right? ELISA, ELISA is an immunoassay test. When, when you hear ELISA, what is the first, um, the first virus that comes to mind? HIV, right? The ELISA test? Yeah. Okay, so it's called enzyme-linked immunoassay. And basically, you're just detecting the antigen or the antibody and what the reagents you're mixing it with, they trigger color change. That's, that's what occurs in the lab. Then you have the autoimmune enzyme immunoassay screening test. So that's used for anti-nuclear antibodies, patients who have uh, certain autoimmune diseases. 
PCR, what is, where, where have we heard about PCR? COVID, right? So what, what does it deal with PCR? DNA sequences, okay? So the, the, key, to, the key to PCR is um, what happens is that you have very, you're amplifying. So you're amplifying a low level, you're, you're, you're exaggerating it, so now it can be what? Tested and it can be quantified. Because not every level can be quantified. Sometimes you have to amplify certain analytes, certain um, antigens, or certain parts of the cell, like in this case it's with DNA, in order to be able to be quantified. So HPV, HIV, in our case, is uh, in our pandemic, COVID. Okay, so anytime you have polymerase chain reaction, you just think of DNA sequences amplifying low levels to quantify that. That's what all that, all that special wording says. Okay, we should have, when we, um, oh God, I keep mentioning you guys up in my other group. Testing, test results. You guys will see over your, over your spans of clinical medicine um, that sometimes age, there's certain factors where the reference values differ. Right, for the same analyte. When we talk about analyte, we talk about whatever we're testing. So age, right? Pediatric, you're gonna see, you cannot read, you cannot read an adult reference, you cannot read an adult test using a pediatric reference value, and vice versa. So that's what we mean by the age. The age changes it. So for example, alkaline phosphatase, high levels in a, an adult, you're thinking of what? Bone metastasis, right, due to um, prostate CA in men, that alkaline phosphatase. But in a, in a child, it's normal. So that's why you can't, nobody fits in a box. You can't fit, in some cases, they cannot, they cannot fit in a box. Gender, gender, I just want to say gender differences. Gender, right? Males have what, more what? Musculature, right? Than we do, than females do. So when you're doing levels such as um, hormonal levels will be different, right, for men and women. Um, creatinine kinase, right, breakdown of muscle. It's a level that will be normal for a man, it's not going to be normal for a woman, okay? Um, the other thing too is race. Little effect on lab results, but when it comes to the genetic diseases, right, that's where it plays a role. Um, pregnancy, what happens in pregnancy? The body's what? On, on a speed, right? On a speedway. So, but certain things like cholesterol will be high, hemoglobin will be low, but that's not, if I have high cholesterol and if I have low hemoglobin and I'm not pregnant, I'll be, you know, that can be a concern. But if I'm a pregnant, if I am pregnant, it's part of, you know, pregnancy. That's why that's also important. Um, food ingestion, remember that there's some certain, when you're sending a patient, why is it so important? Because if you're going to order glucose tests on a patient, what's the first thing you're going to tell your patient? You need to be fasting. If you're going to order a lipid profile, if a patient comes in and you want to you wanna check uh, uh, cholesterol triglycerides, and you guys have the lab there, what's the first thing you're going to ask the patient? When was the last time you had something to eat? Because you know food ingestion is going to skew your values. Okay, um, posture, we never think of that. 
certain, certain blood tests in the patient standing or sitting, if the patient has their legs crossed when the blood is drawn, all those things will, can affect, can actually affect a certain analytes. So like no epinephrine, epinephrine, renin, aldosterone, protein, potassium, very important analytes. Potassium levels, why do we need to keep potassium levels a day? Hypokalemia. What's the first thing you think of with potassium? Tachycardia, right? So that's why it's really important that believe it or not, the way the blood is drawn, is drawn you need. So when when um, when a medical assistant or whoever's drawing blood on certain for certain tests that the posture makes it different, they would usually they write patient in supine position, patient in seated position. Okay, so that so that the lab knows to use the correct reference value to to um, correlate that patient's blood with depending on the position. So those are some of the variables. Okay, this should be this is just a skip through. You guys do this as well when you um when you have your one your clinical um, lab data just before you go out into clinicals like these guys should have done. Methods of blood collection, venous, right? Venous arterial and skin puncture. What is it? Which is capillary, right? Oh, did I put it there? Yeah, the capillary skin. Okay, so what is the most common? Venous, okay? What do we know about arterial? Let's look at arterial. The key with arterial blood is usually it's the uniform in terms of what it contains. When will we do an arterial stick? When will we need arterial blood? ABGs, right? Arterial blood gases, patients in acidosis, alkalosis, right? When, when, when the patient has either a respiratory acidosis, a metabolic acidosis, respiratory alkalosis, or respiratory um, acidosis. So anytime you hear the terms ABGs, it's an arterial stick. Not very pleasant, not easy to do. How do you know you're in the artery rather than the vein? Pulsations, right? Arteries have a pulse. You ever put, anybody ever put IVs in your bed? So I'm really put an IV uh, catheter into an artery? Huh? Yeah. Okay, so what the A lines are down here, talking like a, a peripheral uh, catheter. We can actually see, you will actually see the, the flash is actually pulsating. And that's not a good thing. When you, you try not to do that when you're drawing blood. Okay, so venous. Venous blood is the blood that we, we use most. Um, when we talk about variations between venous blood and arterial blood, these are the things we talk about. These are the, the pH. That's why we use it for uh, the acidosis and alkalosis. Carbon dioxide concentration, glucose, lactic acid, and ammonia levels. So there are differences between the two, and that's why um, when would you when would you order an arterial versus venous, right? When would you order ABGs? Um, it, it has to do with like we said, certain things for like pH and CO2 and PCO2 and so forth. Okay, capillary stick. What can you think of when you see capillary stick? Okay, if I show you these two fingers, glucose, right? Point of care testing. 
So that's the capillary stick. They call it the skin puncture. Pediatric, the pediatric patient, newborns in, in uh, not children, most in newborns, he the heel stick to get to get blood. Okay? So it, it's a mixture of both. It's not one or the other. Capillary sticks are a mixture of both. Okay. Any questions so far? See, very straightforward, right? It's just, just walking through the PowerPoint. Okay, another thing about Venus, a Venus blood draw, um, is that, yeah, but, I mean, for, for you, anybody who's drawn blood or worked in the office where they draw blood, right, that's why all the tubes have different top, color tops. And every color top will tell, it has the different color tops have different additives. Some don't have additives at all. And it's really important when they talk about the order of the draw, it means that what, what it is is that if you need a certain test, right, you will have to, if it is that we're doing, let's say, um, let's say we're doing blood culture, that has to be the first blood draw. If you have to do a blood culture and you have to do liver enzymes or you have to do a CBC, you don't, you need to do the correct order. So we want to do uh, the, the, um, Blood culture first, why? Why do you think it is the first draw? Because of what? Okay, I hear, I hear a voice and I hear seeing a hand. Contamination and? Yeah, steroids, same thing. Okay, yeah, because I didn't, I, I couldn't um, understand this master blood uh, make it difficult sometimes. So contamination, sterile. So you don't want to add any additional organisms to the blood just from um, going through the skin. So, to, so you want to make sure that it's the first, not from going through the skin, meaning from continuously you know, taking other samples. So there, there is the order of the draw. These are usually pretty good test questions. Now that I'm going to ask you, well, I could ask you the color. <clears throat> but just for you guys to get an idea, usually I give test questions on that. So everybody's like, okay, well, I can try this one. This is uploaded. You guys have it, right? Oh, okay. All right. So timing. Another thing, another thing that you're going to find is timing of the blood draw, right? Some, most of them can be obtained randomly, but there's certain ones that have to be taken at a certain period of time, you have those that have to be serial. Give me an example of one that you have to do serial blood draws. Troponins. Troponins are one of those. They will never take, they will never treat, do anything to a patient who only has one troponin level. You need at least two troponin levels, usually four to six hours apart. Some plates, some maybe. Six hours is usually the max, but you need to have serial blood draws. Another thing about timing, well, we said already with regards to um, time periods of when the patient has had something orally, right, something to eat, right? So that's another that's another thing about timing. Um, specimens for therapeutic, when we talk about therapeutic drug monitoring, and I'll stop with this slide and we'll pick it up um, when I see you guys on... Oh, tomorrow. So we start with therapeutic. What do we know about therapeutic drug monitoring? It depends on what you're monitoring the drug for, right? What drug it is and what's the purpose.
drink. So the thing with, um, with therapeutic drug monitoring, certain patients, right? Certain patients, the, the um, level of the drug in the bloodstream has a very narrow range. So you want the level to be within a certain range because if the level is above, the patient can become, you can, you can actually poison the patient, right? It increases the toxicity. And then if the level is low, like I said before, in the, in the, in the lecture, it really doesn't make sense because you're, you're giving the patient medication, but it's not the, appro the appropriate level is not maintained. Depocort is one of those that today you do need to draw levels because the patient can become toxic. So they always have to be maintained within like 500, it's usually 500 to 1,000 depending. So Depocort is one of those. Um, when it comes to when do you draw, and that's one of the anticonvulsants, and that's seizure medication. So when do you want to draw? Well, it all depends. If you want it at to know when it is the highest level, highest concentration, that's the peak. Okay? So toxicity, you want to draw it when, when it should be at the highest level. And then when you want to, uh, the therapeutic levels, you usually want to draw it at the trough level when it's at its lowest. Because you want to know, is am I giving the patient the correct amount? Do I need to increase the dose? Okay? So that's what we'll start for today. I didn't realize it was that good. That was slide number 10. We're going to have a very short lecture on my day. You guys can have a question for muscular skeleton or...